Join us for part one of the dialogue with the ever-brilliant Renaissance man, Jamie Wheel, who invites us into an exploration of the great challenges of our time and how we can live as human beings with our heads up and our hearts open in ways which lead us to flourish, look deeply into our lives, and to face into these times in ways which enable us to live into the fullness of our being. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Well, welcome back, everyone, or welcome, it's your first time, to the Deep Transformation Podcast. My name is John Dupuy, and as always, this is my partner and dear friend, Dr. Roger Walsh. And today, if you don't know who this is, you haven't been on the internet much recently, but this is Jamie Wheel, and he's our guest to get into things and see if we can... uh, find some stuff out or explore some things that are that are with us but let me let me just do an opening comment and at the risk of not sounding like a a gushing podcast host that heaps praise upon our our, our guest Savia so I've been deeply impacted by your work Jamie and I was a big fan of Stephen Fire I'm a flow guy okay I mean the, some of the best moments in my life and some of my connection with spirit god the world meaning purpose have come from those experiences and you just nailed it there and but I remember when Roger first said he got you to be a guest I my first thought was guy's brilliant but he's so depressing and let me <laughs> And this was this was that's, a bit, what, that's what my wife says. Yeah, that was yeah, my wife. My wife says that too. But that was a bit after your book had come out, Stealing Fire, which is tremendously successful. I mean, a very influential. Everybody was reading it, and you were giving this talk instead of you know being the the author basking in the glow of his recent success, and you know like this, you were just examining the world and looking at all this stuff and just putting it all together, talking about getting off the grid and getting your wife and kids and moving somewhere where you could just, just survive. And I thought, oh God, I know that one. But anyway, as I got oh, back- No, 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 no. To, to, to be clear, not getting off the grid to survive, getting off the grid to thrive. That has go. always been our life, our life goal. It was just, we were broke ass grad students in Boulder and couldn't, like, I always had a fantasy of just getting a mining claim for dirt cheap and putting up a yurt with a solar panel that we had to ski into and just being able to write. So like our dream hasn't changed a bit. The fact that there is a little bit more external urgency is not the driver. The driver is we love being deeply connected and self-sufficient. And that's what our life is based on. It's not a retreat from, it's a movement okay. towards. Thank you for but, that. But hell yes, bug out time. <laughs> and and so I, I, I started reading your book and listening to your more recent interviews. And what I got, and what I'm deeply admiring is that you faced the beast. I mean, you looked into the heart of darkness deeply and brought it together. And the first part of your book was just cathartic for me. I mean, I'd kind of thought about it and just, oh my God, it brings it out so beautifully. But you went through it and you came out on the other end with gifts to give. You're bringing medicine back to your people after having faced the horrors and challenges of our time. And I just have deep respect and gratitude for that. So. That's what I needed to say. Yeah. Thank you. Well, look, I mean, and I don't think that process is over. You know, it it is forever. It is a cycle and we're forever getting trundled and held down thinking we're going to die. And then we pop up to air and sunshine and we're like, whoo, you know, thank God I made that one. And then you get the, you know, you're like, and I just want to be on dry land. And then you're like, maybe I'm going to go paddle back out and try and catch another wave. And then, and that happens. And so I think we're all in for this. Right. And, and it's, and the, the premise of the book kind of hangs on like, at least for me personally, I've never felt good or comfortable with any non-dual, neo-Vedantic, absolutist maps of spirituality or development, because it, it felt like it was always a, a separation from the sort of the vicissitudes of the human condition, like shit happens, life's a bitch, and then we die. And I always felt much more sort of just settled almost in my own nervous system by whether it was 
Tommy Chodron or Thich Nhat Hanh or, you know, or, or anybody really who was expressing, hey, WYSIWYG, right? What we see is what we get. This is the thing. And can we come into a kind of deeply grounded humanness about our humanity or humaneness about our humanity? So that to me was kind of like the lodestar versus any more ascendant or aspirational sort of destination. And therefore the question was, is how do we do it? How do we do this human thing with our heads up and our hearts open and not get crushed by the tragedies and absurdities of it all? So that was very much kind of what guided that inquiry. And so, yeah, lately kind of ish, I'm on the other side of the grief. And then the next series of major personal or collective events will happen and we'll be back in that cycle for another, for another hold down, you know? And it does seem to be a cycle that I noticed for myself, I opened to the, to everything we're facing and it feels we're not going to make it then there's there's an opening to it a, a wrestling with it and a, and a, a looking for okay so what can i do how can i make my tiny little contribution and then there may be a kind of kind of psychological closing down some defensiveness even but also some kind of new equilibrium perhaps a sense of purpose that comes from from responding and and finding a way to make make a contribution of some kind but but i think there's a very important word you used it's a cycle it really is a cycle for anyone who wants to stay open both to the challenges of our time and the depths of our own humanity and the possibilities of what we can do yeah i mean for me i had a very you know a very sort of physical version of this. I, I remember reading George Leonard's mastery and, and his way of Aikido back in the day. And that had inspired me. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, at the time I was studying a different Chinese, more internal art. And I was like, oh man, that, that's all about being rooted. And it's all about not losing your balance. And, and in fact, if you did lose your balance, then your, you know, your teacher would say, well, you needed to be more rooted. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the conversation. Right. And Aikido was so completely different. It said, you know, when, not if you fall, you're going to fall, learn to fall well, learn to fall gracefully. And in fact, you can actually get to an inflection point where your ability to fall gracefully and maintain your center is so deeply rooted in your being that even when you're flying through the air, you are still centered. And that to me felt like, a, that felt like much more practical medicine. I mean, on a very literal level, like mountain biking, skiing, like I did not want to keep busting collarbones or, or, or having spiral fractures. I'm like, I need to fall better so that I can play harder. But then on the kind of metaphorical level, it was, it was deeply true. Don't bank on, and this is true for a neo-Vedantic practice or any, you know, Eckhart Tolle's power of now, like anything, get to your happy place and stay there. You know, the power of now, sort of how do we do this instead of the power of next? How do we learn to practice keeping our centers in dynamic flux, in unstable conditions to, to extend our capacity to, to ride the edge? Yeah. So at this stage in your life, how do you, well, what, both Roger and I were in the integral movement. I gather from your talk that you were there in the early days when that thing was happening in Boulder and we all went through our versions of that. But one of the things that were the most powerful idea for me that I got out of the integral happening, if you will, was the idea of integral practice because I was really fucked up. Okay. And, you know, my students ask me, why do you meditate so much? Because I'm so fucked up. I really need to. But the ideas of working all the essential, the body, the mind, the interiors, the spiritual as an ongoing repetitive cycle in order to become the people that we need to be to do what we need to do is, is remarkable. And one of the things I've really been interested in and have tried to share with folks over the years, and you seem to be such a, a channel right now of of stuff that we need to know and need to hear an awakening voice, a prophetic voice. How do you, how do you keep yourself centered? What kind of practices you do at this stage? And I know it changes over time, but where are you at with that now? Hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, I think it's really important to state up front. I am a lazy and undisciplined bastard. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, there's all sorts of things I do and this is why, you know, our organization is called the flow genome project. It wasn't because I actually favored, you know, the sort of, sugar sales of, Hey, you can get into these peak states and it's fantastic. It was much more, Oh, I've never done anything from the ought and should category. I've never gone to a gym to work out, but I've busted my ass to climb a mountain so I can ski back down it. And to me, that was one of my first inflection points was I was like, wait a second. I am in fact, lazy and undisciplined. And yet I also 
love to push it into really hard things sometimes. What's the difference? And where is that fuel source compared to obligation, the kind of Calvinist, you know, Protestant work ethic stuff? Because I just did not have that chip installed. And so that was my real inquiry into the Howard Thurman thing of find what makes you come alive and go and do it. Because the world needs people who have come alive. And so that was really the inquiry. And for me, kinetic action in nature. I mean, basically people have asked me like, what's your practice or who's your teacher or whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't really have one and don't really have one. <laughs> but, but what it has been is kind of the four M's, you know, it was sort of music, mountains, mushrooms, and marriage. It was live celebratory music and a full, full hat tip to Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter and the boys for carrying that lysergic lineage from the pranksters forward, but also articulating a beautiful antinomian American hermetic tradition, which, which, which was, you know, in the lyrics, in the songs, in the community gatherings, there was no one grabbing the ring, right? There, there wasn't, I mean, Garcia explicitly rejected that role of the Christ, which was clearly being pressed on him all the time, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, even to the lyrics of the song, his job is to shed light and not to master. And so that kind of trickster antinomian American mysticism was a huge a huge, I didn't even realize it until I've looked back and appreciated like, oh, that was, in, that was our early software installed about how this can be done and about what it all means. Because, you know, second set of a dead show with uh, tens of thousands of people on the same psychedelic frequency, all being animated by kinetic living scripture, you know, with, with these Cohen's coming through, just coming through, you know, and, you, and those were the ones that ended up on the t-shirts and the bumper stickers. Those are the ones that the crowd would roar. One man gathers what another man spills. Like there's, you know, like just infinite amounts of here's a cosmology. Here is a worldview that bridges the mystic and, and the tragic. And here's how we live through it. And then mountains, mountains and oceans. We were fortunate to be a part of a number of those kind of communities. And not only was there the sort of Whitman, John Muir kind of connection with the natural sublime, but there was also facing Kali. There were funerals. People died in rivers and avalanches and rock slides and things. And so that sense of like, we are choosing to worship at the feet of the mother. And that keeps us honest. You know, you go to Marin or Encinitas or Boulder these days, and you know, any, any new age wannabe can just be spouting unfalsifiable bullshit. And if they're persuasive enough, they get away with it. Sure. You know, versus did you, you know, gravity doesn't lie and it's a harsh mistress. So that, that combination of that antinomian mysticism from the musical traditions, and then the entire sort of Colorado, new grass, bluegrass scene, like there was many, many people that were touched from that initial Grateful Dead diaspora into fish from Vermont and string cheese incident from Colorado. There's lots and lots of keeping that torch burning. And then the natural sublime plus the validation, falsification, and high competency requirements to participate in, you know, extreme engagement with that space, long-term dyadic partnership. And then, yeah, I would say any form of psychoactives that have afforded deep, non-ordinary state experiences of high information, richness, and possible inspiration along the way, you know, I would say those have been kind of the lodestones that have guided my life, but totally organically, you know, not, not from a roadmap. So it's been, it's been very much forging a path for yourself, if in, uh, maybe a, a pathless path of just uh, very organic responses to what, what uh, really creates aliveness is what, it's, is what I pick up. Yeah. And it goes forwards and backwards in time. Right. I mean, because those are my experiences starting in college would be like, you know, having some profound accidental mystical experience and going, what for the love of God was that about? And then being like, okay, so I've just had an interior subjective experience. I'm not trying to calibrate that across. Is, is this a one-off or is this a pattern? And if so, who else has had these experiences where in time and space and what was their take on it? So that, that became, that's the sort of neuro neuroanthropology that's the look back as to where else are there blips and it's felt to me at least that there was this erratic invisible lineage that crossed time and space it would pop up in japan here or tibet there or europe you know or germany or where you know wherever or greece you know you name it but it was erratic it didn't just start one place and thrive there indefinitely 
And it's sometimes it was the secret within the secret. Sometimes it was an esoteric subset of an exoteric tradition. And you're like, oh, those guys, you know, it's the Tom Wolf phrase, like being into the pudding. You know, <laughs> he's like, though you, you can sort of see who through history was into the pudding. And, and that was my, that became my study, both sort of personal and academic, which led to me have a fascinating education. But I also realized it's wildly spotty because I just skipped entire swaths of folks you're supposed to know all about. So like European intellectuals, I barely, like there's so many holes in my game because <laughs> if it didn't feel like somebody was sourcing transmission, I lost all interest. Yeah. So it's like, like Swedenborg to Blake. Yes. But then not to like the, the, the sort of lame romantics. It was always kind of like, where was the crazy wisdom functional mystics? And then once you got a sense of that, so that's, that's that sort of invisible lineage from the past. I mean, even back to Enoch and, and Metatron, you're like, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an example of a human skipping the dying process and going straight to God body. Like that's a, that's a kind of close to a one-off. Like what was that about? Even, even archetypally and metaphorically, right? So what are, what are all these tales from the past? Is there a current that feels alive in, in us because that was the other thing is I also felt like I was being reeled in by like a quicksilver thread. I was like, wait, I'm having friends get pulled off into ditches, cul-de-sacs, this and that. I continually just get dragged forwards up this mountain. Like I'm just getting reeled in by like a tractor beam in Star Trek. What is that tractor beam? What is that collective intelligence of this narrative, of this meta narrative that I feel that I have just been sucked into? And can I stay on my feet and keep riding this thing and find out potentially where its destination is, but also where it came from? And what's your sense at this stage of what that tractor beam is? Whew. Well, I mean, I had a, I suppose, an appropriately kind of epic where I was, I was up in the mountains, close to the continental divide right at the end of my twenties. And, and I was with my sort of Anakin Skywalker student, you know, and we went into a, and it was a, there was a series of weeks. Like I nearly drowned from cold water immersion, swimming the lake at this circ, but then survived that. I then found this magical mystical cave with a stream, with a spring boiling out of it that I then went back to look for five separate times and does not exist anymore. Um, and I, you know, like I'm a mountaineer, I like no topography. I know like waypoints, like I'm like, it should be right here and it's not anymore. And then coming unstuck in time and nearly dying, being, being like, oh, like I have completed the great work. If I leave my meat suit now, that's okay. If my wife and baby son come up and find me tomorrow, they'll know I did it you know, and that'll be okay. And then some part of me was like, Hey, dummy, you know, like wake up, like must get glucose to the brain. Like, like, like get yourself in a sleeping bag and like deal son. And I came back down that mountain feeling like, Oh wow, that was it. That was the great work. That was the accomplishment, like bridging heaven and earth, like yeehaw. And I, and I thought I am coming down the mountain, just like those Zen ox herders wrote about with helping hands. I'm going to do good things. And then I just got my ass handed to me. So like in, in, in the most, like in most stories, you know, I was frantically reading about dark nights of the soul and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, these are really hairy. Feels like you're going to die, you know, typically about six months. I'm like three years into mine, you know, just getting flayed on a daily basis with dull butter knives. And I'm just like, oh my God. And I would have, I would have stepped off this coil. I would have ended my life, not out of like clinical depression, despair, but out of almost like a samurai sense of dishonoring that which I'd been shown. It was like mm -hmm. a seppuku kind of thing. But then even that was the double bind because I was a householder with a family. And I'm like, that would be the most ultimate fuckwit selfish move at this point. I can't even do that. I cannot even get out of this thing. I have to stay open to it all. So what I, obvious in hindsight, <laughs> what I like getting catapulted up at a relatively early age with a, rel a highly understructured whatever pathway i'd always been looking for my dumbledore and gandalf hadn't found him yeah. get there anyway thinking that that was some form of culmination and completion only to go kind of like i don't know who's who the it's not bugs bunny bugs bunny never does the slip but like the cartoon like the the, the cartoon like slip down the ladder catching your chin on every rung like that's what <laughs> i had to do so every single rung that i had skipped on the way up just caught me in the chin on the way down and then i had to put all those pieces together and sort of rebuild from scratch what a not recommended i would not recommend it folks listening at home <laughs> slow and steady wins the race <laughs> what do you feel 
emerged from that. I mean, clearly there was some sort of integration, uh, learning. Uh, it's not just like it was a dark night of the soul and eventually you kind of fell out of it. You were, it was a, clearly an active process of making, of sense making, of learning, of taking, taking this all in and using every part of it you could. What was the Jamie? Was it 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 by this stage? What was, what was it that emerged? Yeah, I mean, and, and also I, I want to kind of, maybe we can kind of weave in your inquiry, which was what's the so what? Like, what is that? You know, what was that track? Yeah. What was that mm-hmm. force? Is, is, there a, is there a teleological thrust to this thing? And as far as like versions of me, fuck if I know. I mean, I, I am humblingly and, and regrettably, I think much the same as I ever was. So reconciling radical repeat transformations that leave you feeling like tomorrow everything's different and on the other hand, if you speak to the people closest to me in my life, they're like, yeah, it kind of still does that same, you know, I mean, like, you know, my, my mother could bust my balls and, and my kids and my wife and my best friends could all laugh along. Like there wouldn't be, they wouldn't be like, I don't know who you're talking about. This guy's, this guy's totally different. So I do think that that's actually, a, that's an open inquiry for the psychedelic renaissance and any other accelerated personal growth modalities, let's say, which is how much do we change really? Yep. You know? That's one of the, uh, that really is a, a question for the next century, perhaps, and not just, not just with psychedelics, but with all these transformative disciplines of which we have an unprecedented array at this time. The question, the, one of the great questions that's going to take a century of research is what aspects of personality and being get changed in what people, by what experience, et cetera, et cetera. And how that's durably gonna- and sustainably... Exactly. You know, and, not, and under what adverse conditions? I mean, our, our mutual friend Zach Stein and Kurt Fisher at Harvard, right? That that developmentalist model, which is slightly different than some of the more linear ones, like Keegan and Kohlberg and everybody else, right? Would was be it's you know our level of development is situational and context dependent and 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 fundamentally fungible to fragile. Yes. Right. Hypothermic people don't make good poets. <laughs> you know, so there's there's state, there's stage, but there's also con- and and environment. And are, are starving starving people don't make good democracies any yeah, yeah any number of things so just as far as the, the track to be my dear like is yeah. there is there 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 is there a point i don't know whether i'm just i suffer a lack of imagination and other people are just bolder and braver i don't know whether it's i don't know i don't know what it is but i i find myself constitutionally incapable of asserting a definitive meta explanation to what's going on mm-hmm. or to what is our role as people, as individuals, as conscious, as, as humanity, as a collective, as consciousness, if you posit something beyond our, our wetware. And it's not from a lack of absolutely mind bending, heart opening, utterly profound mythic experiences. In fact, our mind and my partner's personal life has unfolded in a series of chapters that are so gobsmacking and so epic and appear to have an incredible plot line to them that it's totally humbling. We sort of hold, we cherish those experiences, but on the other hand, I can never say them out loud because it would be the most ridiculous self-indulgent, pretentious (laughs) fuck wittery ever. So you're like, okay, so they just stay on the shelf. And on the other hand, they are they are the the course of our experience. What is that? Are we are we unique? Do I just have an overactive imagination? Right? Is there something really important? Is this everybody's birthright? And people just need to kind of find the right channel to be able to unpack and interpret those things. I mean, that that was the cut I took at the end of the book with that notion of the Jesus fish, like our mythic mm-hmm. lives versus our biographic lives, was an attempt to sort of try and try and wrestle with that. And I, do you know Chris Bratch or Batch? I think he wrote yes, Banished from Heaven. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Big yeah. books. The right. Misty in the Mind of the Cosmos, a very, very profound book. Yeah. Right. So like I just read that and he and I are, are actually uh, going to be chatting soon. For people who don't know, he took 74 high dose LSD ex- uh, uh, experiences in a therapeutic kind of a discipline controlled therapeutic setting over 20 years and then has documented what he saw, including the collective pain body of all humans ever, including a sense that, hey, we actually opted into this, a very kind of Hinduist, 
Hindu-esque sort of Shiva Shakti out of the great one, got bored, split into two, lost itself in its own imminence. And now the game is to reinfuse the imminence or, or the here and now of matter-based consciousness with its own self-awareness kind of thing. And in fact, this is all on purpose. We chose this. There's no suffering that's not on purpose. And then we reef, you know, we go through a dark time and then we boot out the other side into a, you know, basically a twice-born humanity and there will be a new age. And now, and so like, I really appreciated the clarity, the discipline, the rigor, the self-awareness of his reporting. And I can resonate, like his, his experiences explain various either phenomena, like, oh shit, that's what happens. You're going into the collective pain body. Like, oh, that would explain it. Not just, I had a bad trip or something like that, right? Like he's got, a, it's got explanatory power. It feels like it's got in, integrity of authorial reference to the, to the material. It's got all sorts of things that I'm really, I really appreciate and I'm grateful for. And it's still a fucking rapture ideology. And I've sort of, right, it's still a, hey, original sin, fall from the garden, here's why. And then one day, friends and neighbors, we get to the green pastures. And so I just don't know. I'd like to know, you know, but I, but, but I, but I, and, and I've had not dissimilar experiences myself of sort of getting to the end of the game and being like, oh shit, we win. How amazing is that? <laughs> and now we have to come back to these middle chapters to live out these sections. But so we know we win. So we don't need to white knuckle this or come from fear or scarcity. We can actually play full out because we've seen the ending. And on the other hand, that could be decades to generations to millennia away. And my sense is if it doesn't happen in your lifetime or the lifetime of your children, it's fucking academic. So when anybody does the kind of like, and, and I think a lot of progressives, a lot of spiritually oriented people, I notice this is one of the ticks that happens when facing existential metacrisis is they'll, they'll start getting close to it. They'll start seeing all the intersecting train wrecks. It'll, they'll get anxious and nervous or despondent. And then they'll just, and they'll just click over to cosmic timescales. And they'll be like, oh, well, maybe the Kali Yuga is supposed to happen. Like, oh, well, maybe, you know, after every forest fire, there are new green shoots. And you're like, yeah, that, but it sucks to be burned to the ground. It would be nice to be a green shoot. <laughs> but let's not do, like conflate timescales. The fact that ultimately it all might work out does not absolve us of facing the reckoning in our own lifetimes that there could be exceptionally bumpy days ahead. So I am just kind of in awe of the misto and the fact that, that, you know, what I've in the most generic terms possible, I've just kind of called the information layer, which could have been Godhead, could have been source, could have been append any supernatural thing from any wisdom tradition anywhere, but just say, when you end up in a certain calibrated state of receptivity in a human nervous system, including prefrontal cortex to spinal column, <laughs> you know, to sense organs, you can experience a whole lot of something extra. And that whole lot of something extra seems to have a baffling precision for the information you receive and relevance and context, baffling levels of insight, but often this wacky sense of humor. Like there's a trickster element and it's on point and, and it puns and there's farces and there's alliteration and there's zingers and there's absurdity. And you're like, where's that coming from? Because if you do the strict reductionist and this is all yes. just synaptic activities and we're that smart and we're just hiding it. And this is just from our Freudian subconscious and we're just activating it and we're, we're extrapolating that it's actually a divine origin because we couldn't own that much complexity or, or insight in ourselves. You're like, yeah, maybe, but it sure seems like it's other. And it sure feels like it has a autonomous sentience and not, if not an omniscient perspective, a sure, hell, sure as hell, a superposed perspective above little monkeys with clothes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> to all of the above. <laughs> and there's so much in what you said, I was thinking of, I'd like to summarize, but I don't think I, there's any way of doing that because I just want to make sure that some, some of the many, many ideas you just put out don't get lost, but there was so much in there. So maybe just some random reminders. One, everything you said, you, you hold in the context of mystery, it sounds like. And that feels really important, but fundamentally, we don't know. 
<laughs> and we don't even know what we don't know. I use the metaphor of some, you know, we'd ask, uh, you know, how, how extensive is the mystery? I think, well, maybe, you know, like a, like a, like an ant crawling around in a, in the basement of a Siberian home, you know, and the, uh, spending its life in the dark. What does it know about the cosmos? Well, maybe we're like that. So that's one, that's, that's a useful context. And on the other hand, you've pointed to the fact that they in some deep experiences and states, there does seem to be some sort of intelligence far beyond our own and, and a guidance that's available to us to the extent we attune ourselves and surrender ourselves to it. So that, and yet we don't know how it's going to turn out, if it's going to turn out, what turning out means or looks like on any large scale. And in, yet on the very individual scale, you alluded to this, but it feels like there's some sort of, there's some sort of guidance that's available to us. And I'd love to hear you talk about what are the ways we can tune into that, that guidance, that wisdom, call it the depths, our own depths, call it transpersonal heights, mm. call it whatever you want. But there's something there which seems like there's a greater wisdom than is available to us and these little egos usually are aware of or identify with or tap into. Love to hear your, your perspective on how we can open to that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and let me just quickly, just because it popped into my head, John, you mentioned that when you first started checking out my stuff, I was a buzzkill, <laughs> right? Like because, because you're wrestling with this, the, uh, the existential situation. Honestly, I mean, I mean, again, back to kind of mountaineering, there's in mountaineering, there's a risk triangle, <clears throat> which you use to assess the given, you know, like, is this a good idea or not? And it's not just what's happening out in the world, right? Like what, what's the mountain? How hard is it to climb, right? Rockfall, ice, avalanche, whatever. It, that's, that's the objective hazard. And then there's the accepted risk. Like we're actually choosing to go climb a mountain, not sit on the couch. Right. And then there's the key other part, which is the subjective hazard, the people, how healthy are we? How well are we getting on? How skilled are we? And that together, then, then the number in the middle, that's your risk assessment based on objective and subjective hazards and acceptable risks. And if you apply that to our situation right now, because people will get, you know, the, the, UN climate report came out and then you get the normal backing and forthing. Is it that bad? Is it really that bad? Who said it's that bad? No, I don't believe it. Yes, it's, it's worse than they say. All that. And that's as if it's just an objective thing. Like, are we in trouble or are we not in trouble? But when you actually map it to what is our acceptable risk? Well, apparently this is implicit, not explicit. Our acceptable risk is we are going to continue running Western civilization at full throttle with no drop whatsoever in developed worlds, uh, lifestyle and consumptive habits and energy use and not jeopardize the stock market and not interrupt anybody's political election cycles or prospects. That appears to be our accepted risk because that's the game we're continuing to play. And our subjective hazards, well, shit show culture wars and civil war and insurrection. So like we're scoring, never mind the objectively sketchy stuff. The other two legs of that triangle are catastrophic. So I think it is at least where I'm coming from at this point is we're absolutely fucked. This is, a, this is going to be a crash landing, not even a hard landing. And whether we can get off the S-curve of a petro-economy, where we basically went on a 150-year crack binge with humanity's legacy. I mean, we basically took millions of years of starlight, right? The sun shining down for photosynthesis compressed into oils and lit it on fire in a century. Now, can we take that ridiculous, anomalous, highly consumptive act and get from the S-curve of a petro-economy onto the S-curve of a renewable and sustainable, equitable world and economy without hitting the deck in between, that's the only game, that's really the only question that anybody should be asking right now, and, the, and it's not looking good on the magic eight ball. So my sense of where's the hope and where does the courage come from is our only redemption. I mean, this is Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, and Krishna. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, but you don't get off the hook, son. You got to go in there and play your part balls deep. And that is your only, that is your only redemption is to fulfill your Dharma to the fullest. And, you know, a more contemporary example is the, the movie Titanic the band, and the band plays on. This thing's going down, women and children first. My Dharma is as a musician. The only thing I have to do that is mine to do right? That offers me redemption in the face of overwhelming complexity and despair 
is to pick up my bow and play nearer my God to thee on behalf of right others, not myself. So to me, it, it is, it is a bittersweet hopefulness, right? And, and it is courage and the, because then, and then, and paradoxically, you know, only then do we have a chance of actually pulling this off. It's the samurai meditate on a thousand ways to die precisely. So you won't, you know, on the battlefield. And, and so that, that's my, that's where my sourcing of still getting up in the morning. That's where, that's where my energy and enthusiasm to communicate comes from. But there's also a kind of a compassionate, almost like, you know, kid falls down skateboarding, you know, and you come into the, to the mother or the, or the, or the doctor and they're like, we're going to braid the wound. We're going to actually scrub this fucking thing with soap and a bristle brush. And you're going to scream at us like we're hurting you, but we're not. This is compassionate pain to get to clean healing. So that, that is uh, just, I just wanted to kind of loop that back, which is not, I have zero interest in being a Cassandra. The interest is in galvanizing people like, Hey, 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 set aside childish things, set aside all your bargaining, set aside all your magical thinking, set aside all your fucking fuzzy logic and all your distractions. And let's get to it because the, the kindest cut is the only thing we have right now is time more of it or less of it. And the sooner we act decisively with more time, the better chance we have of pulling this thing out of a deep curve and trying to, you know, ideally keep the wheels on so we can take back off again. But now, Roger, in that shaggy dog story, please reframe your, your question that I was then going to respond to. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, just, that's the context of our times you just outlined and the, the way in which we find meaning in responding to this, this, very, you know, this very challenging question, which we, or this enormous challenge we find ourselves in, which we don't know how it's going to turn out. Oh, but, I've got it. I've got it. Now, now, now I fully, fully remember your question. So the question was sort of like, what is the way in which we can make use of access to those inspirational states and kind of roll that into our life, right? Yeah. So, so. I do my best to lay this out in this book because, it, and it's not abstract. Yeah. We've been kind of woodshedding this for a better part of a decade, which is if we can have periodized access. So basically, if you think of ourselves, this is you know, kind of Robert Anton Wilson's notion of hedonic engineering. How can we use peak states in order to reformat consciousness and selfhood? Basically, he said, intelligence studying itself to become more intelligent. Why be dumb, depressed, and agitated when you can be smart, tranquil, and happy, right? So that kind of thing. Except that, oh shit, this is happening at the end of time. But wait, didn't everybody always say it was the end of time? Sandwiches and clapboards and the end is nigh. Yes, but now the end is nigh-ish. And now what do we do? And how wacky is it that just maybe, just maybe after a thousand false starts and missed dates and, and broken promises of 2012 or 2001 or Y2K or you know, millenarian stuff from back in the day, what if we actually are on the sharp end of history? Like mind-blowing. So the question is, is how do we balance coming alive, our own personal for personal and cultural fulfillment towards the better world our hearts know is possible kind of thing, of sort of unlimited growth and complexity and unfolding highest, best life against staying alive, a decrease in opportunity, a closing of windows, and a potential triaging of choices. And back, that's back to that washing machine cycle of ours. Like, we don't know, and it's a lively situation, and our input into it shapes it. So with the hedonic engineering, I mean, A, I would say we are living a flywheel of inspiration, healing, and connection, ecstasis, catharsis, and communitas. Like, and quite often when we have a peak experience, it does a couple of things. It often, there's often a, a, an experience of anamnesis or remembering like, oh, I've been here before and I remember this thread. I remember this level of insight or complexity or consequence. But then there's often also like a sort of printout of like, and here's where you could do a little work. You know, it's the Suzuki Roshi. You're perfect as you are and you could use a little work. And so we get both. We get that affirmation of the implicate order, Plato's ideal forms. You get some sense of like, oh, wow, it's all beautiful. I get it. And then you also get your to-dos, your homework. And that goes, pulls you down into the catharsis, the healing and the integration. And rarely do we do this in isolation in a closet by ourselves. And those experiences typically create intimacy, trust, connection with others. And that's the communitas. That's how we do the, the pair bonding all the way to 
tribal primate thing. So I think something that is interesting right now is, you know, if you're going to be a hedonic engineer playing with the buttons of incentive, reward, and pleasure, then you actually have to, have to also have a hedonic calendar. You have to build in liberating structures and checks and balances for that pursuit. Otherwise, you just go straight into hedonism. Otherwise, you go, you pull an Aleister Crowley, right? Like, like there's a thousand examples of the idea of like, you know, the left-hand path, you know, of Tantra mm-hmm. and in- inclusive, including all the things instead of thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's the fastest route to awakening with the lowest success rate. So like, how do we put in guardrails that aren't actually right-hand path structures because you're like wait that's a bit of a conundrum if if the left hand path is it's all good but then you get into the left hand path and you realize ooh that's a bit much then the question is is like have i now not just sudden subtly swapped back over to another right hand move where i said yes all this but but not that or not them or something else so my sense is is that the the true kind of middle path hybrid of left and right is to embrace all ecstatic techniques of ecstasy, the sort of Eliade's phrase, but do so with the liberating structures of scheduling, of calendaring. So daily practices that are fundamental, foundational, do your push-ups, floss your teeth, do your yoga, do your meditation set, all the generally good foundational stuff. Then on a weekly basis, re, you know, revive a Sabbath, whatever you want to do with it, and have some deep touch that reminds you of, of source, however you would name or phrase that monthly one day you know of a month where you actually do a fully deep dive and this could you know with increasing tools time technologies and intensity a seasonal solstices equinoxes july the fourth you know <laughs> halloween's take your pick you know secular or sacred rhythms and then an annual one week seasonal weekend and then an annual one week and if you do that you can create a flywheel effect right you can you can blow the pipes out in your you know, and that could be a Vipassana retreat. That could be a week at Burning Man. That could be an ultra marathon. That could be international travel. Like take your pick what your one at once a year thing is, but it should be major. It should have an element of risk and uncertainty to it. And it should be the kind of thing that, you know, leaves you with no doubt why you're here and your state of aliveness and potentially, you know, your, your road forwards. But so that's the big boost, your once a year big thing. But typically right now, people are, I think we're lacking, we're good at micro practices decently, right? People have their yoga, they have their CrossFit, they do whatever, they're even micro dosing, right? And we're good at the macro. People are blowing themselves to kingdom come with all manner of powerful psychotechnologies, but we're terrible at the mezzo, the middle, the in-betweens. <laughs> so we go, we go pillar to post. We go, you know, it's almost like, you know, like letting, like untying a, a balloon and, you know, goes up to the ceiling and then crashes to the floor in a crumpled heap. And then because people don't have meso practices, then they go back to the atom bombs and they keep blowing themselves wide open and they blow themselves wide open again. And they feel that they're losing it. And then they go back to that same well. So they're sort of fishing with dynamite. Well, Jamie, you're talking about the checks and balances. It's a really you know, key here. So you're talking about a temporal checks and balance. You don't do it every day, all the time. You choose once a month or, or, or on the special days, but what other, what other checks and balances from your experience would you suggest to keep us grounded in the now yet open to the all, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I kind of playfully like wrote a replacement to the 10 commandments, you know, call it the calling of the 10 suggestions because you're like, okay, this, you know, as we're all getting a, you know, where you're not the boss of me, you know, like that's, a, that's everybody's take these days. People are, have just outright rejected traditional hierarchies and orthodoxies. So, right. So, so not only to the actual historical 10 commandments, not only are they getting a little long in the tooth, you know, if I shall not covet my neighbor's ass, you're like, does, is this helpful right now? Really? Like that's taking up a line, you know, isn't there something a little more relevant? There's, there's time that we need an update, but there's also a requirement to move from morals to ethics. And obviously there's a thousand technical mm. definitions, but like the, the one I always occurs, like morals are fixed, rigid, binaries, thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And there's, there's no room for interpretation. And that was actually necessary for any early societies. But ethics changes it entirely. And it's no longer absolutely and consistently right or wrong. It's, it's not the act, it's your relationship to the act. Yes. Right? So, so the, yeah, the way I would frame it is, is that morality is about external behaviors 
ethics at its best in a sense of appropriateness to each moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I could smother my mother with a pillow and it could be cold-blooded murder or it could be absolutely heart-touching euthanasia. Yeah. And, and, the, and the external rules work for, they work, they work for certain stages and phases, mm -hmm. but I, ideally, and it doesn't always happen, but ideally people mature to a place where they are acting more out of principle and felt sense and appropriateness to the moment rather than out of rigid rules. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that playful recasting of the 10 commandments into the 10 suggestions, some of them, I mean, one was just do the obvious, like we fetishize all the tips, tricks, hacks, and shortcuts. And there's huge industries and self-help and biohacking and all these things flogging us with more supplements and headsets and gear and apps and all the things to suddenly radically transform us out of the inescapable nature of the human condition. So I would say, you know, Hey, like shake it off just being conditioned as a consumer promising the silver bullets and escape routes and just realize, do the obvious, like sleep more, move often, eat well, make love, be grateful, grieve fully, get outside. We know how to do this. And so that just saves a ton of time and money. Do the obvious. We know how to do this. And then the next one is, and don't do stupid shit. Like if we're playing in these spaces and we're unlocking ecstatic technologies that used to be under lock and key, in exoteric lineages to very, very, very few people. If we're going to democratize it, if we're going to open source it, okay, like I'm 100% in it, but don't do stupid shit. Don't end up in a cult, a body bag, a mental institution, a prison, divorce court unintentionally. Like don't, do, don't overshoot the mark, rehab, right? Don't overshoot the mark. Realize that this is fifth class rock climbing. This is not a walk in the park. Because you can fall and die doesn't make the mountain bad. It means that there is apprenticeship, there is equipment, there are partners, there are safety protocols. The view from the top is stunning. That's why it's worth doing. But it is not absent risk. And then another one is let the mystery stay the mystery. I'm boggled by the number of people who are, relatively speaking, psychedelic or contemplative novices have a handful of non-ordinary state experiences and come back boldly asserting the fundamental natures of reality. You know, <laughs> yes. and, and you're like, well, slow your roll, son. What are you talking about? And so letting the mystery stay the mystery also saves us all that insane amount of storytelling and premature sloppy meaning making. And whether it's I'm in touch with my guardian angels or my guides on the other side or the universe, you know, wants this or that and the other, or, or it's baby Jesus or Muhammad, like it, it, that part is, it doesn't matter, but it is the false certainty and narrative arrogance of the newly converted. You know, let's just leave a honking, like it's, sometimes it's better to let the burning bush just burn. I think cultivating, recultivating our nature of both the mystery and the trickster element of life are arguably two things that got wrung out of the Western enlightenment, the gross material, rational empiricism. We absolutely lost the mystery. And then probably there's a Judeo-Christian thread here too, but we absolutely lost the trickster element of the divine that you can get punked, you know, and the more certain you are, the more certain you're going to get punked. Yeah. Uh, dog, dogmatism is deadly and dangerous. And yet, and we keep coming back to, and I love the way you keep acknowledging the importance of the mystery. And yet, if we look at developmental psychology, the capacity for really opening to and acknowledging mystery is a very high, is a very uh, high developmental achievement. It doesn't come online until some later stages. I mean, we can all have glimpses of it. We can open to open to it to a certain extent. But as I read, say, Suzanne Cook Reuter's ego development stages, her descriptions of really opening to and being able to to sustain an awareness of and comfort with and surrender to the ultimate mystery of of it all really requires a lot of maturity. Yeah, absolutely. And it also tends not to fit the old householder's path and keeping a day job. Like if you think of like Ramakrishna, blissed out to God consciousness, has a main line to Kali, and he gets picked up off the streets and plopped in the temple and fed and looked after. Even, even Eckhart Tolle, right? I mean, I mean he, you know, he has his famous park bench epiphany. He's borderline gibbering idiot for a couple of years there, somehow makes it through that, then hits the workshop circuit in Oprah, and now has an entire cadre of people buffering him from reality. 
So, but he's got agents, he's got people negotiating, he's got people doing all those things. I mean, we randomly, someone on our marketing team had just, I don't know how they did it, but it was basically like, who's doing most ads. I mean, at last, like last month, Eckert's team had something like 250 concurrent ads on Facebook going for like, must've been hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, is that him in the oneness? You know, no, that's not that. Right? That's agency spending real money to meet people in social media with a pitch, a promise, and an offer, right? And like, so that notion of how close to this to the light do we get, and how close can we hold it without decohering is important because I think that was one of my. You, you, I mean, like you asked about sort of like the my dark night of the soul, and then what did I become, or how did I get out of it, or or play through from there? It was basically just that sense of like, oh, the light is vast and infinite and kind of John Lilly style, utterly indifferent, you know, <laughs> utterly indifferent to our petty mortal needs. And funnily enough, we've now got the keys to the kingdom. Like we know how to get there. It's not hard. And hundreds of thousands of people around the world are doing it in larger numbers than ever at any time in human history, period. But that's not the sticking point. Lobbing ourselves into infinity, bungee jumping to the back of beyond, not the hard thing. The hard thing is Monday morning on a rainy, in rainy February, and how do I pay my bills and have a life and work in a way that's remotely congruent and keeps an open through line to that version of reality and that possibility for myself that I have glimpsed? Like we're the fail point and it's way, 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 way low down on the stack. And of course, the, the current psychedelic renaissance and the current boom in sort of, you know, basically just state chasing, I think is it's accurately intuiting that there has been a loss in mystery and that recultivating states and non-ordinary states is healthy. Back to Roger, your, your point way back when on, you know, monophasic versus polyphasic culture. The idea that we've been excessively locked down and monophasic, and now we're trying to find a postmodern expression of a polyphasic culture, not going back into indigenous tribalism and magical thinking, but kind of what does it mean to hold those realms and spaces? Yes, super necessary, but not sufficient. And all the, the reason we're getting so much lift and yeehaws and gee whizzes out of it is just because it was so atrophied, access to consistent mystical states. But bring that online and you suddenly realize, oh, okay, now that part's back in balance, but it's that, that, that wasn't the whole ballgame. Yes. That was, yes. a, it was absent and necessary to replace. But actually, the weak link is still, how do we do this human thing and survive and love and procreate and not get eaten before we die? Join us for part two of this remarkable dialogue where we dive deeper into these and other intriguing topics. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.